Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. This discussion is a part of IWP's China series. J. Michael Cole is a Taipei-based senior fellow with the Global Taiwan Institute in Washington, D.C., senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa, senior fellow with the Taiwan Studies Program at the University of Nottingham, UK, associate researcher with the French Center for Research on Contemporary China, assistant coordinator for the International Coalition for Democratic Renewal Forum 2000 China Working Group, and chief editor of Taiwan Sentinel. He is the author of five books. His latest, Convergence or Conflict in the Taiwan Strait, was published by Rutledge in fall 2016. He is currently writing a new book on cross-strait relations since 2016 to be published in July 2019. Before moving to Taiwan in 2005, Mr. Cole is an analyst with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in Ottawa. He has a master's degree in war studies from the Royal Military College of Canada, a bachelor's degree in English literature from Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, the International Diploma in Humanitarian Assistance from the Center for International Health and Cooperation, Fordham University, and CX77 Peacekeeping from the Lester B. Pearson International Peacekeeping Center. Please join me in welcoming our speaker, Mr. Cole. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. It's the first time that my entire biography is, is read prior to one of my speeches. It's kind of long. Um, well, thank you very much. Good, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Uh, welcome here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I feel like I've been giving the same, the same talk all week. This is the, the fifth engagement that I've had since, uh, since Tuesday talking on, on that particular subject. I apologize if there's anyone in the room who's been to uh, a previous speak, some of speech, some of that might be a little bit familiar, but I'll try to be uh, original and innovative as well so that you're going to remain engaged in all that and, and not fall asleep. Um, okay, so uh, basically I've been asked to talk about Chinese influence operations, particularly targeting Taiwan, but also uh, as it pertains to activities uh, outside of Taiwan. Um, this is a subject that I have been researching since, well, basically since I moved to Taiwan in, back in 2005, but more, uh, more consistently or intensely since, uh, I would say 2013 or so, uh, when a famous gangster uh, returned to Taiwan after spending about a decade uh, in China, and his name is Zhang Hanle, also known as the White Wolf, uh, who is a former head of the Bamboo Union. Uh, triad uh, in Taiwan, uh, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Zhang had spent a decade in federal prison in the United States on, on drug trafficking charges, and also had been involved indirectly in the assassination of Henry, Henry Liu in San Diego back in 2000, uh, in uh, 1983. 
so his return to Taiwan and his uh, the fact that he had created a, a political party called the China Unification Promotion Party while he was in China and was able to come back to Taiwan uh, as a former most wanted individual was arrested at Songshan Airport and released on bail the very same afternoon, uh, whereupon he started advocating uh, for unification and basically uh, one country, two systems in Taiwan. And they had little blue booklets that they would distribute uh, to whomever uh, they, they encountered. So his presence in Taiwan and his involvement in Taiwanese politics really started, uh, compelled me to start looking into uh, that particular uh, organization, but also to extend my research to different uh, groups, uh, NGOs, civil society, and other political parties in Taiwan that were playing a role in pro-unification uh, activities. Uh, and it's like you know, using the uh, the old analogy: it's a it's an it's peeling an onion. The more you look into these things, the more layers you discover, more participants, and then you start uh, doing link analysis and trying to see who's talking to whom. Uh, where they might be getting their funding, uh, prior affiliations that they may have had uh, in China, for those of them who had uh, spent time in China, and then looking, uh, of course, in open source, trying to see uh, you know, which activities, conferences, forums, exchanges uh, that they are taking, uh, taking part in. And surprisingly, for a country that is supposedly uh, you know, intransparent, uh, there's a lot of material that can be uncovered in uh, open source and there's a lot of uh, photographs and, and articles written in Simplified Chinese so that you can start uh, you know, drawing a picture of, of these individuals and the roles that they're playing and who they're interacting with. Uh, and then you start identifying some of their Chinese counterparts, uh, several of whom have uh, had a background in intelligence and now were supposedly retired and working on you know, cultural and, and trade and other, other interesting areas. So that's the reason why it has become, it went from a hobby to one of the main uh, subjects of my research uh, in Taiwan. Um, and now, um, the notion that this is a new phenomenon, obviously, when it comes to Taiwan, is, is, uh, is dead wrong. This has been going on since forever. Uh, we have, however, seen a, an uptick or intensification in these types of activities, obviously, since uh, President Tsai Ing-wen came into office in May 20, uh, 2016. She is from the Democratic Progressive Party, which is a much more China-skeptic party that has drawn certain lines when it comes to Taiwan's sovereignty and democracy. Uh, but even before that, uh, when Ma Ying-jeou from the Kuomintang, supposedly Beijing-friendly Kuomintang, um, starting in, in the early months of his second term, uh, is a time when the Chinese Communist Party already started to realize that they were not able to get from the Kuomintang what they were hoping uh, to obtain uh, towards unification. And the reason being uh, very simple, the KMT, for all its faults, also operates in a democracy and realizes that it needs to answer to the demands and expectations of the public. When they went over those lines, uh, as in uh, March 2014, they were confronted with the Sunflower Movement, which occupied Parliament for 23 days over a controversial uh, services trade agreement with China. That was, a, what, a couple of months before the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, and there was a lot of cross-pollination between the two movements as well. So that got Beijing very worried, uh, and that's when we started seeing activities that basically sought to bypass uh, central government authorities in, uh, in Taiwan. So again, I repeat, it's important to realize that these activities did not begin or even start intensifying under the DPP, but even before that, under the KMT. 
soon afterwards, uh, some rather prominent uh, retired PLA individuals started telling the Chinese media that they had completely lost faith in the KMT's ability uh, to work towards unification. And one of them in a, in a conference basically said, um, KMT is an unreliable partner. All they do when they come on visits to China is drink our wine, eat our food, and then they go back home and they do absolutely nothing that we were expecting them to do. So, which basically has uh, compelled the CCP to um, try other means by which to, uh, to work towards unification with Taiwan. Of course, there were the, uh, you know, the sticks and carrot approach. Uh, they banked on ideology, they banked on economic determinism by promising riches for companies, individuals, and municipalities that were agreeable to working with Beijing, but then eventually they also realized that that in and of itself was insufficient to convince the Taiwanese uh, to win their, their hearts and minds. So all of this was also combined with military coercion, so intensification in military exercises, simulations of amphibious assaults on Taiwan, uh, PLA Air Force, PLA Navy activity uh, near and around Taiwan, uh, as we saw earlier this year, crossing the median line in the Taiwan Strait in a deliberate act, the first time since 1999. So basically it's a multi-faceted approach to Taiwan, and all of this, uh, again, they realize is not succeeding in uh, getting Taiwan anywhere near where they hope it's going to be. And in reality, uh, all trends within Taiwanese society are pointing in the opposite direction. So self-identification as Taiwanese has been rising, uh, support for unification has been dropping, and it's also a generational thing. So the younger the members of, of the population in Taiwan, the less inclined they are to support uh, China, even though a large number of them are willing to go to China to study or work, because that's where the opportunities are. They're being pragmatic. So which basically leads me to the subject of my talk today, which is political warfare or active measures or uh, sharp power, depending how, how you want to call these things. Uh, it is the newest component in China's overall strategy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and basically it operates around uh, six main pillars, uh, the first of which is an attempt to corrode, uh, bypass, manipulate democratic institutions, elections, and public trust in, in those. Uh, second one is to undermine the morale of the targeted society and weaken resistance to Beijing's objectives. Third one is to sow confusion in Taiwanese society. Uh, the fourth one is to co-opt elites, business people, politicians, retired military officers, civil society, and the media. The fifth one is to coerce the regime's uh, critics and opponents in Taiwan and outside Taiwan. And the sixth one is more uh, in line with psychological warfare, and it's to exacerbate feelings of abandonment, uh, isolation, and inevitability. Uh, all of this, uh, especially under the Tsai Ing-wen government, is meant to uh, balkanize or uh, atomize Taiwanese society uh, and its body politics, uh, and to bypass central state institutions, especially but not limited to uh, the current, hi, thanks for joining us, uh, current administration, uh, and to directly capture local politicians, municipal leaders, grassroots, uh, agricultural and fishery sectors, tourism, uh, land development, and to create associations uh, with counterparts in China. So there's, for example, the Tainan Cross-Strait Exchange Promotion Association, 
and the Cross-Strait Taiwan Guangdong Exchange Association. If you start looking at these organizations, uh, you quickly realize that the people behind those are the same uh, gangsters slash pro-unification types that have been calling for, for one country, two systems. At uh, an earlier conference this week, I was asked by, uh, by a lady, well, isn't that normal that you would have, given the cultural affinities and all that, that you would have direct interactions between municipalities? And my response was, absolutely, it's natural, uh, but the main difference here is the fact that the organizers are actively uh, agents of unification work and they're involved with organized crime and all that. So that's certainly a, a, an interesting layer in these kinds of, uh, kinds of activities. Uh, then we've seen, again, under Tsai, but even before, the weaponization of trade. So they're basically bypassing municipalities that are governed by politicians that the CCP does not like. So those tend to be either independents or members of the DPP. Um, basically, what they tried early, uh, early on in the Tsai uh, administration was to uh, weaponize tourism and to deny uh, tour groups the, uh, the rights to travel to certain municipalities that were governed by the DPP. Conversely, municipalities that were governed by KMT or independents who are in favor of closer ties with Beijing would be rewarded by larger groups of, uh, of tourists, as well as purchasing delegations from China, buying food products and fisheries and flat screen TVs and, and whatnot. Um, and uh, mostly re recognizing or rewarding uh, municipal leaders who acknowledge the so-called 1992 consensus uh, in one China uh, principle, as Beijing uh, phrases it. Uh, they have also rewarded these politicians by bringing, their, bringing them to Beijing on all expenses paid trips, uh, where they get access to senior CCP officials and the usual briefing with you know, Taiwan Affairs Office uh, and other individuals. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate in Taiwan as to whether the pro, overtly pro-unification parties should even be allowed to register. Uh, and that's a question that's been asked repeatedly. Uh, some of us choose to regard this as a sign of Taiwan's uh, democratic maturity, uh, in that it can countenance the existence of parties that are actually arguing for unification with China. Uh, and others are saying that their activity should be regarded as, as treason and that therefore they should not be able to field candidates in elections or even register their parties. That's an open question. Um, but so there's a number of them, as I said, the aforementioned uh, China Unification Promotion Party. Uh, there's also the New Party, which, uh, which has been around for several years. And one that uh, emerged recently uh, around 2000 and late 2015 is called the Taiwan Red Party uh, and all of them have been pushing the, uh, the unification agenda. Uh, now what the government is trying to do, especially with CUPP, is establish where their funding is coming from. Uh, if there is uh, evidence that there is direct funding from Beijing, then that would render those parties illegal. Uh, but we've had raids by Ministry of Justice Investigation Bureau in the past couple of years, but we've yet to hear the, the results of uh, of those investigations. Uh, at the same time, these parties have also collaborated with a constellation of civic organizations in Taiwan. There are several dozens of them uh, that are all also working towards a unification agenda, organizing events, protesting, uh, holding rallies, uh, managing Facebook pages and different groups on social media and whatnot. 
Uh, one of them is, for example, the Cocentric Patriotism Association that is well known for raising the PRC flag outside Taipei 101 uh, skyscraper and the uh, Ximending uh, shopping area. Again, same debate, should people be allowed to wave the PRC flag in Taiwan? And the argument is that, well, it's their freedom of, of expression and all that. If they're not doing anything illegal, why should these individuals be barred from doing so? Uh, with that particular group, they also have uh, the tendency to physically assault Falun Gong practitioners uh, and Beijing critics. So then there's, there's certainly an illegal component. Uh, and some of those individuals have been briefly detained for these kinds of activities, but the associations and organizations have been allowed to continue existing and operating. Um, other areas that are possible routes for uh, CCP money into Taiwan, um, criminal activities, the fact that there's two main triads in Taiwan, the Bamboo Union and the Four Seas Gang, uh, that run, you know, underground gambling, uh, casinos, prostitution, drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, and whatnot. Obviously, that gives them the ability to generate revenue. And now what needs to be determined by law enforcement is whether some of that revenue is being channeled into cronification activities in, in Taiwan as well. Uh, we've had uh, Buddhist temples, which are uh, actually rather known for acting as conduits for Chinese money into, into Taiwan. And they're actually abusing laws. There's a blind spot in Taiwanese regulations where religious organizations do not have to declare uh, their financial, uh, make their financial records uh, public. So there's a, there's a huge blind spot. The great majority of incense that Buddhist temples use in Taiwan is produced back in China. So that again involves a lot of, uh, of money movement and they do send delegations back and forth to China as well and oftentimes come back with printouts of uh, notices by Taiwan Affairs Office. Uh, the local temple in my, uh, in my neighborhood came back with a brand new flat screen TV and the moment they turned it on for several weeks they were only playing CCTV and facing outside. Uh, outside the temple so that passers-by would get that strong dose of uh, CCP propaganda. Um, and uh, yeah, other areas is, um, I mean, we've seen, we've been tracking some of the individuals like from the new party and CUPP, they do travel overseas and they have attended conferences in New York City and other places in North America. One of them last year by the New York chapter of the China Council for Promotion of Peaceful National Unification and also sponsored by the U.S. China Cultural Exchange Society. Uh, and interestingly enough, a few weeks after one of those uh, individuals uh, came back to Taiwan, a member of the youth branch of the new party, uh, he and his father's residences were raided by law enforcement and discovered piles of cash money that were being used to try to recruit uh, Taiwanese military personnel and to work towards uh, unification for, for them as well. Now whether that cash money came from his trip to New York is remains to be to be seen, but there's certainly uh, interesting connections there and his father was actually in charge of a Buddhist temple as well, so they found very uh, creative uh, financing <laughs> activities at, at the said temple. As I said, uh, CUPP is often involved in violent protests and intimidation of civil society. Uh, whenever under the Mao government you had senior Chinese officials visiting Taiwan, they would create their own um, you know, protection for Chinese individuals, so a second layer of protection outside of law enforcement in Taiwan, uh, repeatedly would clash with uh, Taiwanese civil society that were protesting those visits by you know, Taiwan Affairs Office officials and others. 
Uh, more recently, both the Bamboo Union and the Four Seas Gang were involved in, in intimidating, uh, intimidation against uh, Hong Kong democracy activists. So upon leaving Hong Kong at the airport, they were greeted by triads in Hong Kong. And then upon arriving at the Italian airport in Taipei, uh, outside Taipei, they were also greeted by uh, these organizations and civic groups. And the son of the chairman of CUPP, uh, the son of White Wolf was there, uh, physically assaulted individuals, was detained and eventually charged for physical assault as well. And that particular individual has been uh, uh, traveling at least, on at least three occasions in recent years, traveling to Naha in Okinawa, uh, meeting with his counterparts in, in Yakuza and organized crime there. Uh, and that those visits seem to coincide with an uptick in protesting against military bases in Okinawa. Uh, advocating not for forced relocation, but for their removal outright and sending them to, to Guam. So there are signs of penetration by CCP uh, in civil society in, uh, in Okinawa and with a direct link to organized crime, uh, pro-unification types uh, in Taiwan. Um, I raised the issue with Japanese friends and government and they were, as usual, quite mum. So I don't know if they're aware of this, but they're certainly not sharing any, any of their findings with us. Um, another uh, note on Buddhist temples as well, there was in April a major uh, religious freedom forum held in Taiwan that was co-sponsored by the U.S. State Department and Taiwan's Minister of Foreign Affairs and uh, the invited Uyghurs and Tibetans and obviously 80% uh, of Taiwanese society is Buddhist so invited a lot of Buddhist temples to participate and quite telling not a single one of them chose to participate in the forum, which obviously became quite critical of, of China as well. So uh, that's another telltale sign that Buddhist temples are, uh, are somewhat in, uh, in Beijing's pockets. Um, moving to the elections in Taiwan, which are very much in the news nowadays, since there will be presidential elections in January next year. Uh, the CCP, there's every, uh, there's every indication that the CCP is now uh, shifted to supporting outlier candidates. So either individuals who do not belong to any of the main political parties, or individuals who do belong to certain political parties, but are also outliers within their own party. A uh, clear example of this, if you follow Taiwanese politics, is Han Guo, who is the current mayor of Kaohsiung. Uh, who was very much a newcomer in KMT politics and has absolutely no uh, relationship with uh, mainstream or core KMT individuals, uh, but he's riding a wave of populism that uh, now positions him as a potential candidate for the presidential elections in, in January. Uh, and he uh, you know, has been saying all the right things when it comes to Beijing's preferences, and oftentimes his, uh, his rhetoric uh, tends to run in parallel with, with things that Beijing has been saying as well. So embracing 1992 consensus, uh, he's been wishy-washy on whether one country, two systems would be applicable to Taiwan when mainstream KMT has been very publicly stating that this is non-viable uh, non for the Taiwanese. Uh, and when a couple of weeks, a couple of months upon being becoming mayor, he immediately went to Xiamen in Hong Kong and had a series of meetings with Taiwan Affairs Office and chief executive in Hong Kong and other uh, interesting individuals. So do we have evidence that he's working on behalf of the CCP? Absolutely not. Uh, but there are certainly worrying signs that he would be uh, willing to go well beyond what long-standing KMT uh, would be willing to, uh, to do with regards to cross-strait relations. So that raises the issue again of indirect funding for uh, Beijing's preferred candidates. 
political parties, civil society, uh, oftentimes also via Hong Kong. So holding companies in Hong Kong uh, have been used to recycle money coming from mainland China. And regulations are such in Taiwan that you can get direct investment from entities that are listed in Hong Kong, but not from China. But that's another uh, blind spot as well for attempted acquisitions of, of land, companies, and media organizations in Taiwan, uh, which puts the onus on the uh, investment commission to do its, uh, its job accordingly. But there were instances where they were failing to do that, and civil society had to step in to make sure that the proper reviews and oversight were carried out. Um, then moving on to propaganda, um, computational propaganda, uh, disinformation, misinformation, fake news on social media and traditional media. Again, uh, the attempt, the aim here is to exacerbate uh, the loss of faith in Taiwan's economy. So we've seen a meme emerge in recent years that basically refers to Taiwan as, as a ghost island, so Guaydao. Uh, and it has uh, been spread on line groups, on Facebook pages, uh, on the famous PTT board, which is a kind of a BBS that's run out of uh, National Taiwan University, uh, very popular among young Taiwanese and political savvy uh, young Taiwanese. And more and more that meme has been appearing as well. Uh, and it seems to have had some um, success in convincing a number of Taiwanese that the economy is not doing well, when in reality it's doing okay. Uh, certainly not doing worse than it was under a KNT government when the government was recognizing 1992 consensus and had much better relations with uh, with China. So this plays again into the hands of candidates like like the aforementioned Han Wuyu, who basically says we want to leave politics aside, we don't want to to fight with China, we should simply focus on the economy. And he has presented himself very much as a Midas-style figure who would somehow magically revive the economy, not only for for the Kaohsiung. Uh, area, but now as a would-be presidential candidate for the whole of, of Taiwan as well. He also has uh, been uh, widely supported by retired civil servants who were affected by President Tsai's uh, pension reforms. Uh, so again, there's that, that money element that, uh, that plays into his hands. Um, and as, at the same time, China is also not only positioning itself through propaganda as the um, the, uh, the destination for Taiwanese uh, business activity, but also uh, through a program known as the 31 Incentives, trying to attract young Taiwanese, well, educated Taiwanese, to go to China to start businesses rather than stay in Taiwan. So there's an effort as well to um, accelerate a brain drain uh, in Taiwan, where oftentimes opportunities for young people are, are lacking. And China obviously uh, offers many opportunities, especially in the high-tech sector, uh, there's two components to this. There's a brain drain, but also the attempt to, uh, I wouldn't say brainwash, but at least convince Taiwanese that they might uh, be better off identifying as Chinese and basically supporting the, the unification program. Behind all these, there's a traditional media that uh, obviously have been co-opted uh, by the CCP. Uh, chief among them is the, uh, the Want Want China Times Media Group. Uh, which it was revealed earlier this year, uh, has received since uh, 2007 upwards of 495 million U.S. dollars in subsidies from the People's Republic of China uh, through its holdings company in Hong Kong. Now, uh, in its defense, uh, China Times Group has said, well, those are two separate companies. So the holdings company in, in uh, Hong Kong is basically for its business operations across China, which are quite 
uh, substantial and that that entity is separate from the media group. So that being said, um, that creates a bit of a problem for us because we cannot claim that that investment is directly responsible for editorial decisions on the part of One China Times Group, which controls newspapers, TV stations, cable distribution, magazines, uh, and, and other areas of online media. Uh, but there's certainly an interesting alignment of its editorial line with uh, Beijing's objectives and preferences, as well as self-censorship on issues such as concentration camps in Xinjiang, the assault on Christian churches across China, crackdown on Falun Gong, and nowadays uh, developments in, in Hong Kong as well over the extradition uh, treaty. Uh, if you watch uh, television in Taiwan uh, in the past week, uh, if you watch Zhongtian, so CTI TV, that is owned by the China Times Group, uh, you will not see a single second of footage of what's going on in Hong Kong right now, uh, which is quite quite revealing as well, and all the other media have been uh, reporting on that quite uh, substantially. China Times, uh, most newspapers in Taiwan had these developments on the front page. China Times had an inside story, bottom left, and it was about this big on the page about what's going on in Hong Kong. And obviously it was adopting Beijing's rhetoric, uh, basically accusing civil society in Hong Kong of being funded by Western uh, elements such as the CIA and uh, troublemakers and, and all that. Uh, and again, uh, One China Times Group has been one of the major pushers for uh, candidate Han Guoyu as well. Uh, you watch their television, normally the first five, six segments are talking about him and how great he's supposed, for, supposed to be for the economy. Uh, and you have other media like uh, TVBS, another TV station, and then Far Eastern Television and newspapers, uh, as I said, China Times, uh, UDN, uh, are all very much on the same page when it comes to uh, candidates who are uh, quite obviously Beijing's preferred candidates for the next uh, next elections, and uh, with that comes censorship, disinformation, media concentration, acquisitions. Uh, there's also speculation, and it has yet to be proven, that uh, in all restaurants, hospital waiting rooms, and other public spaces uh, across Taiwan. Operators have been given a certain amount of money every month to only play uh, these TV stations. So what they're trying to do is saturate the environment as well with positive reinforcement of certain candidates. Uh, and Han Warrior again went from someone that nobody had ever heard of to someone that 23 million people in Taiwan are constantly talking about. So there was this, this uh, social engineering of someone who went from nowhere to being basically the supposed savior of Taiwan's economy. So there's uh, interesting engineering going on uh, there as well. Uh, the chairman of uh, China Times Group is Taiwan's second wealthiest individual, has made billions of dollars in selling crackers and running hospitals and other uh, businesses back in China. Uh, and he's for many years been involved in uh, cross-strait media forums and uh, owns a constellation of companies, some of which are listed in Cayman Islands which also makes tracking financial finances quite uh, problematic. Um, Mr. Tsai has led uh, five cross-strait media delegations to Beijing since 2015. Uh, the first year, there were 34 representatives from Taiwan, uh, mainly from print and, and television. Uh, this year, in May, uh, there were more than 70. Uh, and they widened the, uh, the areas, so it, now it included print, TV, magazines, new media, film, distribution, and publishing, uh, as well as a youth uh, segment. Uh, 
uh, and they were even greeted by the chairman of the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, Wang Yang, uh, who basically told them that it is now their responsibility to promote peaceful reunification, uh, the so-called 1992 consensus, and one country, two systems formula. Uh, so again, whether all of this will uh, shape the editorial lines of these uh, media organizations remains to be seen, but certainly there were amenable to traveling to Beijing and hear that, hearing that kind of discourse. During the summit, uh, we were also told that a number of uh, collaboration agreements were, were signed by the organizations, but we have yet to figure out what those exactly were. Uh, one group has also been involved, as I said, in organizing cross-strait cultural forums uh, that are used to indoctrinate uh, participants and again reinforce the same means about shared destiny, one country, two systems, unification, and all that. Uh, and also attempt to co-opt uh, participants. Uh, partners at these events include a number of individuals who are known to have uh, past connections with Chinese intelligence and United Front Work Departments, GPDLD and all that. Uh, one of the main Chinese outlets that has been involved in those events, in those organizations, in those, uh, in those events is the China Energy Fund Committee, so Tonggo Huaxin, which has been in the news since 2017 because uh, the head of their think tank in Hong Kong, Patrick Hunt, a former Hong Kong official, uh, was detained and arrested at the airport in New York City for attempts to bribe the Secretary General of the UN General Assembly. A few weeks later, the chairman of the energy company based in Shanghai, uh, Ye Jianming, was disappeared in China. Uh, the company was nationalized on the orders of, uh, of Xi Jinping, we are told. Uh, and Ye Jiming had made several visits to the United States, uh, meeting different individuals, establishing connections with the Biden family. Uh, the first person that uh, Patrick Hur contacted after being detained was uh, Joe Biden's brother, who's a lawyer. Uh, so, uh, and we know for a fact that CFC had actively tried to co-opt former military officers, intelligence officers, including Jim Wolseley. Uh, and to bring them to conferences in the United States where they would, again, talk about One China. Uh, as well as reinforce uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, and uh, ban uh, ceasing uh, arms sales to Taiwan and China's claims in the South and East China Sea as well. So by recruiting, if you will, uh, participants who were formerly officials in, in U.S. government and, and other governments, it also lended legitimacy to their arguments by demonstrating that well-known figures in, in U.S. intelligence and military were also agreeing with, uh, with China on these, uh, on these disputes. Again, whether that was effective or not is, remains to be seen. Uh, these companies also benefited from the fact that nobody really knew who were, they were dealing with. Uh, the assumption was that, that they were dealing with normal academics and think tank types when in reality a good number of them were working on behalf of the United Front Work Department or had a you know past or connections with the intelligence world back in China. The fact that CFC became news in the past couple of years now has alerted a lot of people uh, in the intel community uh, in the West, not just in the U.S. but also in places like uh, Czech Republic, where they were very actively recruiting individuals, including the president Miloš Zeman, uh, and acquiring media organizations, breweries, soccer teams, and whatnot, so as to reinforce their their influence on on society. Uh, over the years, CFC had threatened to sue at least six individuals, uh, journalists and academics worldwide, who were investigating their connections and the connections of their uh, chairman Ye. Uh, I am one of the individuals who were threatened, and the only one who was actually sued in Taiwanese court, so that dragged for two years. 
which also now uh, is part of the pattern where we're seeing uh, more frequent recourse to uh, lawfare or threat of legal action against uh, whomever is investigating these kinds of connections. Uh, as a deterrent, I don't think they've ever won a single uh, case in court, but that's not the point. Uh, my case was eventually thrown out of court as frivolous, but it cost me you know, legal counsel for two years, and now I'm a little bit reluctant to write about that particular company because I don't feel like going through this again. And it has implications for my family and all that. Uh, if they start doing that in uh, smaller countries where these organizations are active, so that pretty much involves all of BRI, uh, you will not have the same financial capacity to fight back or institutions, democratic and all that, that can assist uh, journalists and academics who are being threatened by the Chinese. So in that regard, I was lucky because I'm based in Taiwan, uh, and we retaliate by giving absolutely everything to U.S. intelligence. So <laughs> that's how we fight back these kinds of activities. Um, now, the big, the big thing nowadays, and uh, that's, that's a growing problem, is disinformation, uh, fabrication, uh, on Facebook, which has the highest penetration rate uh, in the world, uh, social media in Taiwan, line groups, which is a bit of a, a WhatsApp uh, that was created in, uh, in South Korea. Uh, we've identified uh, dozens of content farms or content mills, which are websites that are operated by uh, Chinese interests whose sole business is to generate and post disinformation with the hopes that that will be grabbed by traditional media and, uh, and chat groups and uh, create confusion and, and basically lead people in, uh, in the wrong direction, oftentimes heavily criticizing the Thai government, uh, raising controversies, using elements of the basis of truth, but then taking information in, in the wrong direction and basically to, to force, uh, to sow divisions and polarization within Taiwanese society, quite reminiscent of the kind of activities that we saw involving Russia in the 2016 elections in the United States. And what's going on in Taiwan right now is what has happened in the United States is that it's taking quite a bit of time for uh, intelligence agencies to realize the impact of uh, disinformation on social media, uh, how they can track that behavior, whether it originates in Taiwan or back in China, uh, and then how to counter these, uh, these activities. So I've had uh, several delegations from Western countries visiting Taiwan, uh, all of them expecting that Taiwan has the solutions to countering these activities. They're not there yet. Uh, they're still in the phase of identifying the, the key nodes of disinformation and uh, trying to come up with means by which to, uh, to mitigate that, those activities. But that will take uh, some time, and which is the reason why I think disinformation is going to play a major role in the presidential elections in Taiwan in January 2020. They've also been very good at uh, penetrating uh, other divisive uh, developments in Taiwan, things like pension reform, as I said, but also legalization of same-sex marriage, uh, which is now uh, bringing together a bunch of conservative, conservative, mostly Christian organizations that are now also accusing the Thai government of undermining social stability by allowing gay individuals uh, to get married. These groups now are all rallying around more conservative candidates who also happen to be supported by Beijing. So I think they've been able to uh, use this information and uh, other means to basically propel all these groups in the same direction so that you match the opposition to, uh, to Taiwan. We've had imagery disinformation as well, PLA Air Force using its official Weibo account to post pictures of uh, Chinese bombers supposedly passing near Taiwan landmarks, including Jay Mountain. Uh, again, that's psychological warfare meant to undermine belief uh, 
or support for Taiwanese military and belief in their ability to counter Chinese uh, encroachment on Taiwan's sovereignty, uh, and also perhaps uh, hope that the Tsai government would uh, overreact and escalate and perhaps give Beijing opportunities to, uh, to push back supposedly and, and defensively. Um, there's also signs that we've seen uh, worldwide that the Chinese are trying to split uh, the pro-independence camp in Taiwan, like they've done with Uyghurs and Tibetans and uh, democracy activists from, uh, from China. Uh, again, by providing financial opportunities for certain individuals uh, back in Taiwan, uh, such as buying large amounts of their books whenever they get published. And then they tend to start saying things that are uh, a bit more pro-Beijing. Uh, pro uh, another current issue right now is the kidnapping of Taiwanese nationals. Uh, who were supposedly committing crimes in China by promoting democracy. The famous case is Lin who was kidnapped a few years ago. Uh, again, it is to um, threaten the Taiwanese, obviously, anyone who is a critic of Beijing, but also uh, is a very effective means to put pressure on the, on the government back in Taiwan uh, by civil society that wants the government to be a bit more forceful in its response, but at the same time also reinforce notions that the Taiwanese government is incapable of standing up to Beijing. So that can also have implications for support for uh, the current government and also implication that the, uh, the implication that Beijing would not uh, behave in such a way if there were a government in Taipei that, for example, acknowledges the 1992 consensus. So this is another means by which China is now punishing um, its adversaries. And as we all know, they're now busy kidnapping Canadian nationals as well over a dispute over Hmong and Huawei. Uh, and there are other Taiwanese nationals who have been kidnapped, uh, but those have not been made uh, public. And that's the families requesting uh, that it be handled uh, behind closed doors. But that's certainly uh, a growing problem. And with the extradition law in Hong Kong, that would now mean that possibly Hong Kong would be a no-go area for any Taiwanese who is deemed to have supported independence or have supported umbrella movement and, and, and all that. So that's quite troubling. Um, abroad, moving outside Taiwan, but still connected to Taiwan, uh, many of the organizations that I've named earlier, uh, primarily CEFC and others, uh, the Nissan Forum for Civilizations, they've all also been trying to reinforce notions that Taiwan should be abandoned, that uh, doing so would improve bilateral relations with Beijing. Uh, certainly, the U.S. is a major target of these operations. Uh, one of the key nodes of electronic, cyber, uh, and traditional disinformation targeting Taiwan is 311 base in Fujian province. Uh, now there are indications that they are shifting somewhat their strategy and targeting more the United States than just, uh, just Taiwan, and very much, again, aimed at uh, convincing uh, Washington to uh, abandon TRA obligations and end uh, military support to Taiwan in the form of, uh, of arms sales. Um, and then lastly, a few last points. Uh, I mean, a bit like the Russians, the Chinese have been very good at using democracy against itself uh, in our democratic institutions to uh, you know, exploit uh, blind spots and foibles in our, in our systems. Uh, we've seen repeated attempts by supporters of Beijing, mostly online, to create a moral equivalence. So basically, whenever the government tries to adopt measures or laws that would be necessary to countering these kinds of activities, then they face accusations that they're being authoritarian, undemocratic, and no better than the people across the Taiwan Strait, that they are 
uh, working against. Uh, and then you create that weird equivalence where politics is all bad, everybody is, is, uh, is lying, is dishonest, so let's talk about other issues like the economy. Uh, and the efficiency of a more authoritarian regime as well. So they're trying to depoliticize uh, the environment in the Taiwan Strait. And again, if you look at the candidates that we suspect are receiving some support from Beijing, they're all on the same page that you don't want to talk about politics, you don't want to talk about democracy, it does not put food on the table, therefore let's talk about the means by which we can all enrich ourselves. So they're also saying that we uh, no longer want to look at politics uh, in Taiwan, and Tsai government is, you know, repeatedly accused of only playing politics and enjoying being a critic of, of Beijing and all that, which is detrimental, supposedly, to the economy. Um, for investigators like, like me and several others, uh, there are several challenges as well. I mean, we don't have access, obviously, to classified material on investigations, especially when it comes to tracking, uh, tracking finances and whatnot. So the best that we can do is accumulate uh, circumstantial evidence, and there's piles of it, uh, but I don't think it's sufficient at the moment to have an airtight case and take that to court uh, and, and start uh, uh, pushing back on some of those organizations and activities. So what i am uh, repeatedly been calling for in Taiwan with uh, very little success to date is for the government itself to fuse uh, open source material with declassified material gathered by law enforcement and intelligence agencies uh, and make a report uh, that is uh, accessible to the public so that they can actually make their case uh, and uh, demonstrate who's involved, the origins, the mechanisms, and then the impact on uh, democratic institutions and, uh, and elections. Because for the time being, we've had the government come out and say there's Chinese influence, but the public remains skeptic, skeptical because they have yet to see the actual evidence of these activities. I think in that case, the Taiwanese government could learn a few tricks from the U.S. government, uh, especially following uh, Russian interference in 2016. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that will materialize at some point. Uh, and then finally, while the activities targeting Taiwan are you know, more immediate and intense given Beijing's objectives, uh, much of what has been described above, uh, with a few uh, cultural and religious exceptions, uh, they can also be applied against other democratic societies if the CCP deems that those are necessary to uh, advance its objectives. Uh, in my view, disinformation, elite capture, and the use of various United Front Link uh, front companies, dual companies and organizations, chambers of commerce worldwide, uh, which benefit from a general lack of awareness on the part of targeted societies uh, will also be of particular concern in coming years. So that's it. I'm happy to take questions and, and reactions. Yes? Quick question. You mentioned the uh, efforts to work against or work for Right. Well, that's that's been that's a long-standing strategy. Um, I mean, there's also the. Uh, I mean, no doubt there's a serious problem of you know espionage in Taiwan. Uh, penetration of military uh, establishment, security intelligence establishment, and all that. Uh, that being said, I, I sense that that threat has been uh, augmented by disinformation and psychological warfare as well. 
as a means to basically convince the Taiwanese that they cannot rely upon their military because they're completely penetrated. Uh, and also targeting, there's a component targeting the Americans in that, and I've heard that repeatedly, is that the Americans should not sell any advanced technology to Taiwan, i.e. the F-35, uh, because the moment Taiwan receives that defense article, it's going to end up in the hands of the Chinese on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. I'm not quite convinced that Taiwan is uh, penetrated to that extent, but that's certainly part of the uh, psychological warfare operations. And as I said, um, the amount of um, uh, Chinese PLA activity uh, across the Taiwan Strait, uh, across the Bashi Channel and Strait of Miyako in the past few years has accelerated tremendously. Uh, and, and occasionally, as I said, they would cross into a uh, median line or into Taiwan's ADIZ. Uh, and this plays up, this makes big news in Taiwan as well, and you would always have the critics of the current government either accusing them of being ineffective or contributing uh, to Chinese aggression because of their policies and, and all that. Um, Does the Congress work? If the U.S. sails a few ships through the Taiwan Strait, is that holding the Taiwan populace? Uh, the reception is, is over, overall quite positive, uh, and it basically counters you know, eternal fears that the uh, United States could at some point abandon them, uh, especially in the current context where you know, time and again we've been told that President Trump is transactional and all that. The fact that you've seen an, an, an increase in U.S. activity in the region uh, and we've also had a, a passage by French uh, vessels, the French are getting a bit more uh, involved in the region as well, uh, is certainly sending uh, signals of reassurance to the Taiwanese uh, populace. And then that provides opportunities for you know, people like me and other, uh, others to remind the Taiwanese public that in the grand scheme of things, it's not just President Trump making decisions, but there, there's institutions back in Washington, D.C., uh, as well, the clear role in these things, and you know, the United States remains a democracy. You have the branch of Congress that is quite supportive of Taiwan as well, uh, and that the notion that President Trump could one day decide that he wants to trade Taiwan for resolving the Korean nuclear issue, for example, uh, it would not be that easy. And that you know, there's been a shift in recent years in DC circles, including at the State Department, that we've seen more and more people in those organizations that are amenable to supporting Taiwan and working with Taiwan. So those would all act as a counter to uh, you know, any abandonment should the executive branch decide to move in that direction. Um, otherwise, I mean, another uh, means by which the Chinese have tried to undermine belief in uh, Taiwanese military would be to bring uh, retired military generals from Taiwan. Uh, all expenses paid trips to China to play golf, to attend conferences and whatnot. And then on a few occasions, uh, Chinese CCP control, Chinese media would report things that the Taiwanese generals supposedly said, uh, supporting unification and that we would not even try to defend Taiwan should the PLA invade, only for the poor retired general to come back to Taiwan and say, I never said these things. Uh, so there's complicity of, of media uh, back in, uh, in China. The problem as well is that um, there's very poor corroboration practices in traditional media in Taiwan. So if something is reported in one media somewhere, chances are 24 hours later, every single media outlet will have reported the same thing, which makes countering this information all the more difficult on the part of the government, and which is another reason why right now um, this information is actually overwhelming the Tsai government because not a day goes by without them having to counter 
different uh, instances of disinformation, and uh, you cannot respond to every single one of them. And the problem, and I've actually, Xu uh, Jian, the deputy foreign minister, has told me, he said there are days where the, the only thing we're doing basically is countering disinformation, especially when President Tsai was transiting in the United States and all that. So they said, then it saps our resources, we no longer have energy to focus on the things that we're supposed to be doing. Right? That's another way that disinformation can be quite effective. And I would add that a lot of disinformation does not come only from China, but a lot of it comes from within Taiwan as well. Uh, and more and more we're seeing Chinese language uh, disinformation on social media that seems to be generated by uh, uh, ethnic Chinese in Malaysia. Uh, so that, and oftentimes the accounts seem to be fake, so there's probably bots or, or uh, or zombie accounts, uh, but there's telltale signs such as no profile picture, uh, no posts whatsoever, weird strings of numbers on Twitter or Facebook as the actual actual address for that particular page. Uh, but then they are using those to swarm uh, different uh, pages and, and critics of Beijing and all that. So there are signs of automation as well, uh, human involvement plus automation. So basically, cyborg strategy uh, targeting Taiwan. So that's some of the areas that that involve the military. Years. Yes? Yeah, so you, you said something about disinformation and also fears of some who have the, the president sending out Taiwan to get whatever they deal with North Korea. I mean, we've seen that from before Peter's inauguration when he called the Taiwanese media. Took a call from the Taiwanese president, right. And all of US media went haywire because <laughs> apparently it's a damn, it's a bad thing. Yeah. And that's one part of the serious information that I've seen going on over the And do you think the situation in Taiwan has any effects on the trade agreement with China? Because I read this morning that the deal has come to a pause. Mm -hmm. the, the trade talks have come to a pause. Sorry. And I, I believe that could probably be a big um, factor. I think that's a factor. Well, first of all, on the call, um, I don't think that was, I mean, the Chinese side probably tried to convince the world over that, you know, it was a dangerous thing for Trump to take a call from Taiwanese president. And when it comes to American media reaction, I think it stemmed mostly from media here being conditioned into regarding these things as, as you know, destabilizing and the break with uh, longstanding policies and all that. Uh, and I remember I was actually, I was in, in London at the time, but I was asked by the New York Times to write an, an op-ed on that particular phone call. And uh, I submitted it, it was in the middle of the night, I was dead lag as always, and then I sent it and they chose not to publish it. And I found out afterwards that that was because I was not critical enough of President Trump. Uh, so there's also the biases in, in media environment in the United States at a time that, you know, the uh, certain media in, in the United States love to point to Mr. Trump's, you know, inexperience and naivete and, and you know, go it alone. Uh, way of doing things, so you could not possibly say anything positive about anything that he was doing at the time. Right? Uh, so I, I don't necessarily think in that case that was uh, disinformation more so than an environment that basically supported or did not support President Trump. If I had been asked by a media outlet in the United States that supports President Trump, probably that my, my op-ed would have been you know, first thing on their website, but unfortunately for me it was, it was the New York Times. Um, as to the trade war, um, well, there's certainly fears in, in Taiwan that the trade war is going to affect some of their companies. Uh, so, uh, if that is, 
again, it, it's it's hard to to see if uh, Taiwan could be used as a bargaining chip for President Trump to get what he wants from the Chinese. And if he tried to do that again, I suspect that you know different branches of government would would push back on on, on this as well, right? I mean, I mean, one one of the other, one of the reasons why I asked that is mm -hmm. because I've seen in the media over the last two months or so, you have the Chinese always talking about the U.S. needs to start doing business with Taiwan, and it's been going on. Oh, okay, for, right, right, right. Weeks, and that's that's why I asked because they they've really been hammering that topic down in U.S. involvement. You mean doing business altogether, or just uh, selling defense articles? All, sir. You mean just uh, stopping, ending defense article, uh, the sale of defense articles to Taiwan, or business uh, altogether? I think it was business altogether. Okay. Well, that's never going to happen because even under the One China policy in Washington D.C., there's nothing that says that the United States has to stop doing business with with Taiwan. Right? That's not. It's not going to happen. There's there's no way that would. I mean, you could have some traction on ending arms sales to Taiwan, but uh, ending business altogether. I mean, even even a small country that have de-recognized Taiwan and established ties with uh, with DPRC in recent years. Uh, you know, the moment that the Taiwanese embassy was closed in that particular country and the embassy of that country closed in Taiwan, they would sit down and renegotiate unofficial organizations so that they couldn't continue trade and all that. I mean, trade is one of the rare areas where China has not really interfered uh, in other countries. Relationship with Taiwan, but the moment you touch on politics or defense, then then they would step in. So if you try that with the United States and Taiwan is the U.S.'s what 14th largest trade partner, something like that. It's one of the you know more important trade partners for the United States, and you know don't quote me on 14, but it's AIT just said nine. Nine, okay. Well, it's even more important, and there's so I mean the the economies are so. Uh, uh, interconnected as well in the you know, chip making sector and, and other areas that to request that the United States stop doing business with Taiwan is, is a preposterous notion plus the fact that many of the companies in Taiwan that do business with the United States uh, have their manufacturing base in China so if you know China would be hurting itself as well if you know you say the United States can no longer conduct business with Foxconn uh, well you're gonna have to find alternatives for all the components in the iPhones for example right? And that's a major, I mean, Foxconn employs 1.5 million workers in China. Uh, so you cannot, you know, I, I don't really don't see that scenario coming uh, coming about. I mean, again, it's a lot of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I think the Chinese government is really uh, against um, the FTAs or like mm. uh, TIFA, this kind of um, like deepening or normalizing. Or just like spelling out some sort of sovereignty. Mm. Uh, That's a good point. Uh, do you see more co-opting of the Chinese uh, academics uh, to help and assist gather intelligence in Taiwan and beyond? Because uh, the New York Times just had the article that was quite uh, highly um, um, that caused a lot of attention um, here in terms of um, you know what exactly are these relatively quite prominent Chinese scholars like Zhu Feng, Wu Baiyi. These scholars uh, clearly were invited to Taiwan past as well. So right, another right, question right. is whether there's a need for intelligence sharing. Right. Well, um, uh, definitely on, uh, there's a number of think tanks, uh, including some in, uh, in Hainan uh, that, focus, that, that focus their research on South China Sea, for example. Uh, that are known to have 
recruited is perhaps too strong a term, but certainly I would say close to co-opted Taiwanese, famous Taiwanese experts on the South China Sea uh, in recent years, and they would actually feature them prominently in their websites, uh, and these individuals would conduct joint studies with the Chinese and publish monographs and books that basically affirm China's or the PRC's claims to the entire South China Sea. Uh, that started again, these developments already were occurring under Mao Zedong. Uh, what I've observed as well is uh, not long before Tsai was elected, you could still find academics in China, uh, interview them in China or when they're traveling to Taiwan, they would say things that perhaps were not uh, agreeable to Xi Jinping. I remember academics being quoted, in, you know, prominent academics being quoted by Washington Post, for example, saying uh, in the lead up to Tsai's inauguration, I don't think Taiwan needs to recognize 92 consensus for the relationship to continue to prosper, right? Uh, and soon enough after inauguration, uh, all these academics went silent. Uh, and now more and more, uh, actually, I, I mean, I myself don't travel to China, uh, but I do have a number of friends in Taiwanese uh, academic circles who are still able to travel to China, and they're increasingly telling me there's no point for them to go to China because they know exactly what the academics are going to tell them. And they could have read that in whatever speech Xi Jinping gave the, the week before. Right? Now, whether these academics have been recruited or uh, believe that or they feel that they cannot depart from the official line in Beijing remains to be determined. Right? Um, now, are some of them uh, recruited by the Chinese authorities to conduct intelligence gathering in Taiwan? Not, I don't have the evidence, but uh, I would not be surprised if they that were part of the of the deal as well, including business people. But, but to be honest, the Taiwanese do the same thing. <laughs> right. I have a question. You, you paint a visible picture of what's happening. I keep telling people I'm an optimist. But what do you expect that the U.S. can do to help Taiwan in countering all this? Right. Right. Well, okay, first of all, um, actually, I wish I had had the occasion to, to, uh, to say that at previous speeches. Yeah, I, I present a fairly grim picture of the situation, but I, I also must emphasize that there's been other periods in Taiwan's history uh, where, you know, the, uh, the picture seemed, seemed dismal, the sky was falling. I remember, you know, I moved there in 2005, there were different phases where people were like, it's game over, right? Uh, Taiwan is also uh, extraordinarily resilient. Uh, and I, I think ultimately if they get some things right, they will be able to counter these kinds of activities as well. All you need is the political will and the, the right investment and continued support by international community and primarily the United States, which takes me, leads me to the second part of your question. Well, as I said, uh, any signal of support on the part of the Americans, you know, as we were talking about the transits in the Taiwan Strait, uh, continued arms sales, uh, more visibility for uh, mail-to-mail exchanges between Taiwan and the U.S. And we saw that recently with a Taiwanese general having his photo taken at a uh, meeting in, uh, in Honolulu with the ROC Marines flag in the background and all that. I mean, these are all small things, but psychologically they, they certainly help uh, boost morale in, in Taiwan and, you know, uh, uh, help people realize that there's continued deepening engagement and all that. The fact that we're seeing now, uh, you know, we've had 20, how many rounds of GCTF now? Is it like it's in a 24 maybe, uh, give or take, uh, you know, joint 
training programs, bilateral efforts to bring senior American officials to Taiwan. Uh, to, it's over 30 now? Okay, they've had, yeah, they've had many. Uh, you know, from combating disease to media literacy to uh, law enforcement, there's been different, uh, and those, those started basically in 2015, so that's several of them in the space of a few years. Uh, now the State Department's GEC is starting to sponsor some programs for bilateral, uh, bilateral ties. The fact that GEC has been such a successful formula that now you have other countries like Japan joining as well, so rather than being bilateral, it's becoming multilateral. Uh, other countries, this is, oh no, this is broadcast live, so I'm not going to mention other countries, but there's interest among other countries in the region as well to either join GCTF or to have their own similar formula to tackle issues like, you know, uh, cyber warfare, which are pro problems for all these democratic societies as well. So that, that um, growing uh, alignment of interests on the part of U.S. and Taiwan is having benefits in terms of positioning Taiwan as a more uh, palatable partner for multilateral efforts as well. Now there's a lot going on involving Taiwan, uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States in uh, promoting rule of law and democracy in Pacific Islands, uh, which are currently targets of Chinese efforts to steal allies. Six of them are official diplomatic allies of Taiwan. Uh, the countries like the U.S. have every interest for security reasons uh, for those countries to remain in the democratic camp and thereby, therefore, official allies of Taiwan. So that has created all kinds of opportunities for uh, joint efforts with, with Taiwan as well. Um, the problem with this is that a lot of these activities, uh, or another, another thing last week, uh, first time the FBI does its uh, regional training for law enforcement, and it was held in Taiwan, and President Tsai was actually there. Uh, to give opening remarks, and as I said, higher higher level engagement is becoming more visible, and that sends a, a right signal to Taiwanese society, uh, and indirectly supports the Thai government as a, a nod to what she's been doing. And uh, I think it signals that Washington is quite pleased with the way she's handled things and cross-rate relations, but that ever difficult triangular relationship as well since 2016. Uh, I sense that we're going to see uh, more of that as well in the lead up to 2020. The uh, United States is not going to come out and explicitly say that they support uh, a second term for President Tsai, but if you have more visible encounters and more senior visits and, and all that, that can certainly uh, assist in that regard. Uh, but one final point on, on that issue, uh, involving U.S. but uh, other democracies as well, is that there is this agreement between Taiwan and, and partners that much of these activities, uh, however constructive, need to be carried out quietly behind closed doors. Because these countries, especially middle powers and small powers, are afraid of Beijing retaliation. So as long as this is carried out quietly, that constructive engagement that allows Taiwan to further connect with the international community will happen. Uh, but if you had a government in Taipei that sought to publicize every of these encounters, uh, I'm pretty sure they would dry up pretty, uh, pretty quickly. So it's incremental. You're not going to have a major break or a signal of, of uh, overt support. But I think it's the accretion or accumulation of all these little things that the, the Tsai government has been doing quite, uh, quite well. And I can tell you for a fact that, uh, again, going back to Chinese academics and officials, uh, they believe that they have Taiwan pretty much where they want it. But there is one thing that bothers the hell out of them in, in recent years, is that closer engagement with the United States. And they never miss an occasion to ask Taiwanese academics, officials, and foreign officials about that, uh, that rapprochement and why it's happening right now. That worries them a lot. So I think it's a good sign for Taiwan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.